Hello and welcome to another episode of All For Nature. I'm your host, Michelle Bonebreak. I'm an outdoor educator here at Shaw Nature Reserve, located just west of St. Louis, Missouri. If you joined us last month, you know we talked all about who we are and all the amazing opportunities for visitors here at the reserve. If you didn't have a chance to listen, that's okay. I encourage you to go back and check out that episode when you can. This month, we're going to be highlighting one of the big events we mentioned last month, and we'll talk about why we feel it's important to offer it and why you should care. Nobody is better suited to help us with this than Erin Goss. Erin is our Native Plant Initiative Coordinator here at the Nature Reserve. I'm so happy to have her on the show, and I think you'll soon understand why. Welcome, Erin. Thank you for hosting and inviting me to participate in this podcast. First off, tell us a little about your work here at the Nature Reserve. Sure. As previously stated, I serve as the Native Plant Initiative Coordinator here at Shaw Nature Reserve, and this position aims to promote native plant horticulture within the St. Louis metro area and surrounding counties like Franklin, Jefferson, and St. Charles counties. My duties range from working with the Missouri Department of Conservation and a big shout out to them for their support on projects as a technical advisor to providing programming for community members and groups. And I also work with Jen, Donald, Joan, and Vivian, our outstanding horticultural team, and a wonderful array of horticulture volunteers to care for and enhance the Whitmar Wildflower Garden and other areas around the reserve. It is a multifaceted position, and I absolutely love it. It sounds like you touch a lot of lives in your day-to-day work, and we are so fortunate to have you on board. Speaking of native plant horticulture, we have one of our signature events coming up very soon, our Fall Wildflower Market. It's taking place on Friday, September 8th, and I know folks look forward to these markets all year. I thought maybe for this episode, we could share a little bit about the wildflower markets we offer here at the Nature Reserve and then dive into why including native plants in our gardens is so important. So to begin, it would be great if you could help our listeners understand what the wildflower markets are. Sure thing. So for over 20 years, Shaw Nature Reserve has hosted wildflower markets, once in the spring and another in the fall. And this is where attendees can shop for native plants, and they can also shop for other craft and food items, surrounded by the beauty of the reserve. Our spring wildflower market tends to be larger, tends to have more vendors, and is also held in a field with big white tents and lots of open space. But our fall market is way more intimate, and it is held in the Glassberg pavilions. It's only one night. But there will be music, food, drinks, and of course, plants. Mm. Missouri Wildflower Nursery, Forest Keeling, Forest Relief, they are all slotted to be present. And we will also have volunteers and native plant experts on site to help answer you know, questions, whatever questions attendees have. Mm. Um, Shaw Nature Reserve offers approximately, approximately 1,700 plants. Wow. And that's about 70 different species. Um, they, that they're offered in the online pre-sale, and they can be picked up at the actual in-person event. The benefit of the pre-sale is that people can take their time planning what plants they want for their gardens, and then they can pre-order them so it guarantees that the species they want will be available and waiting for them. While other vendors offer the fun experience of shopping at the market, by purchasing plants from the Shaw Nature Reserve pre-order, you are also 
supporting our five-person horticultural team and the reserve as a whole. Awesome. Listeners, at the end of the show, we'll give you all the information you need to know about the upcoming market, so be sure to stay tuned. Okay, now let's talk a little more about native plants. Before we get too far along, I think it would be helpful to start with a foundation of understanding when it comes to terminology surrounding native plants. More and more, as I browse groups online, I find people talking about native plants, but I've also noticed that sometimes when terms get casually tossed about online, there's some confusion or misunderstanding uh, as to what those terms mean. So, for example, when we talk about a native plant, I mean, obviously, plants don't care about borders on a map established by humans, right? So what do we mean when we say a plant is native to an area? Yeah, so generally when native to Missouri is referenced, we mean that a species was established or living in the Missouri region prior to colonialization by Europeans. So think think 1492 is the, is the cutoff. Mm. These plants, they tend to have deep connections with the local ecosystem, and they may have developed specific relationships with other plants, animals, or insects that are mutually beneficial. But just as there are disagreements about plant taxonomy, there are definitely disagreements about the definitions of quote-unquote native. Mm -hmm. But to me, a cornerstone in in thinking about the native versus non-native debate is whether a species is interconnected within an ecosystem, or more aptly, how do they participate within the local food web. For example, a white oak or Quercus alba, is native to Missouri, and it hosts over 500 insect species. And those insect species, the larvae, will then be fed upon by chickadees, wrens, red-bellied woodpeckers, on and on. That's 500 in- insect species feeding a vast majority of those, those other creatures up the chain. Therefore, if oaks, which are considered a keystone species, if they were to disappear overnight, our ecosystems as we know them today would drastically change and potentially collapse. Wow, that really puts into perspective how much one kind of native tree, just one kind of tree does for the animals who live nearby. And as you noted, not just the insects that eat the leaves on that tree, but everything that eats those insects and on down the line or up the food chain, as it were. That's a really big concept to try to wrap our minds around, so I recommend listeners go see for themselves. Gazing up into the canopy of an oak tree or getting up close and inspecting the tree bark will quickly reveal lots of little lives living on that tree. And many other animals are dependent on those creatures for food, such as the birds you mentioned, for example. So taking just a few minutes out of your busy day to stand beneath an oak and really deeply observe what's happening on and around it, I think it can really open your eyes and inspire wonder and awe, no matter your age or your level of cynicism. Yes. (laughs) One other term I often see used or misused when lurking about those online groups is the term aggressive. When we talk about an aggressive plant, that could be a non-native plant, but my understanding is that native plants can be aggressive too. And that an aggressive plant can be aggressive in some situations, but not others, kind of like me. (laughs) Um, So what makes a plant aggressive in an area? And why is it important that we are aware of how aggressive a plant is? 
Yeah, so aggressive species, even natives, can escape the confines of a garden or a yard. But aggressive should not be confused with invasive. Mm. An invasive plant is technically a non-native species that has escaped cultivation and spread throughout our natural environments without human assistance. So these include Bradford pear trees, bush honeysuckle, Japanese honeysuckle, winter creeper, and burning bush. And that's just to name a few. Mm. They tend to have no natural predators or diseases to check the growth and spread. An aggressive plant is any plant, regardless of provenance, that has the potential to spread rapidly and overtake garden beds. And garden beds here is the key. These plants tend to spread underground through rhizomes or modified roots and or through through the production of lots and lots of seeds. Sometimes this is desirable. You know, our native wild strawberry or Fragaria virginiana, it can spread relatively quickly through a garden bed, forming a dense ground cover, but it also has the potential to smother other plants along the way. So knowing how these plants spread can help you mind your own garden, and this knowledge can also help you be a good neighbor. If the landscaping of the house next door is like all clean lines and it's all under three feet and it's and it's planted in blocks, in other words, it's a very, very formal planting. If you add cup plant, which is also called Silphium perfoliatum, if you add that to your front yard, it's not always the best decision for neighborly relations. <laughs> Even though it is, an, it is a native plant and it has really awesome wildlife benefits, the cup plant can grow up to 10 feet tall. It spreads by rhizomes as well as seed, and it can overtake a small garden in no time. They can also jump gardens by way of birds and wind. And it is just, so it's just as important to choose the right plant for the space when gardening with natives as it is for any other gardening. Interesting. You know, I think in the past several years, gardening and landscaping with native plants has become more popular as people learn more about all the benefits native plants provide. You touched on this topic before when we discussed how important white oaks, for example, are to ecosystem balance in their native range, such as Missouri. I would love it if you could break down for our listeners some other reasons why it's so important for communities to ensure native plants are well represented in their area. Sure. So, you know, two of the two of the ways that native plants benefit us is through is mitigating climate change and carbon sequestration. Those are things that we don't really we don't really see and it doesn't always touch us personally, but a couple other other um, benefits of native plants include mitigating stormwater. Um, they can help soak up water and slow runoff, but also pollinators. You know, pollinators, pollinators, pollinators. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know the world population of insects is on the decline and that those insects are pollinating native plants, which in turn provide food for us and food for our food. And these pollinators are sometimes migrating and they need places to rest or find shelter. These are things that native plants can provide them. Also, many are reliant on one particular host plant for reproduction or growth or food. And here you can think about monarch caterpillars and and milkweed. And then the more native plants we put in the earth, the more we help our insects populations overall. And in doing so, the more we help ourselves. For example, there are certain types of domestic crops that require something called buzz pollination. 
These include cucumbers, tomatoes, and potatoes. And buds pollination is exactly what it sounds like, a bee, and mostly they are solitary native bees, not honeybees. Honeybees do not participate in buzz pollination. Mm. So we're looking at solitary native bees. They saddle up to a tomato flower. They shake their behinds rather rapidly. They then release, this releases the pollen from a specialized male part, and it releases the pollen onto the back of the bees, which are hairy. These pollen-coated bees then move to the next flower. Then they also shake their tush or buzz the flower. And in the process of buzzing, some of the pollen from the first plant drops into the female parts of the new plant, pollinating it. And so if the bees do not have enough food or, more importantly, quality nutrition, they cannot complete this super important yet seemingly tiny action, and thus we would be without tomatoes. Mm. The most nutritious food that you can ever give a native insect is a native plant. Even those non-natives that pollinators seem to enjoy, like butterfly bush, they don't supply the correct nutritional requirements for migration. So imagine feeding a 10-year-old Skittles for lunch and then sending them out for a five-mile run. (laughs) The poor kid will probably run out of energy, develop a stomach ache, cramps, and if Skittles are the only food source available for a long enough duration, he or she can also develop indicators of malnutrition. And we do see this in insect populations. Ah, so when nature, or we as humans, provide the proper nutrition for pollinators through our native landscapes, those pollinator populations stay healthy, and they in turn help provide proper nutrition for us by pollinating the fruits and vegetables that end up on our table? Absolutely. That makes total sense. The more little native bee behinds we have out there (laughs) buzzing in the flowers, the more likely it is that we have food too. And I do love a homegrown tomato. I would hate to be without those. So, okay, awesome. What else? Well, you know, it, it makes economic sense. And, you know, we are all thinking about our pocketbooks these days. And something that traditional lawns of turf, boxwood, and rock mulch and landscape fa- fabric, which is also sometimes called ecological wastelands, they really show their true costs when measuring the inputs required to maintain them. And so questions that we ask are, you know, how long does it take to mow a half-acre lawn? How much gas is required? And at what cost? Is the lawn treated with fertilizers and pesticides? And how expensive is it to treat uh, the lawn with those chemicals? And then where do the excess chemical treatments go? And what does these costs look like over time? So integrating native plants can reduce the cost and time associated with landscape maintenance over the long haul. And more importantly, the environmental costs are vastly decreased, including economic costs paid by taxpayers. We, the people, pay the bill for polluted groundwater. And it is extremely important to remember that what one person chooses to do with their little piece of heaven does affect the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not to say that all lawns are bad or a person is bad for wanting a lawn. It's more so that traditional landscape practices are most much, much costlier to our pocketbooks and health than we have historically been led to believe. And integrating native plants is a way to offset these costs. What an interesting and important perspective. So just to review what we've talked about so far, native plants serve to balance an ecosystem by stabilizing the food chain. They help the pollinators by providing them the right nutrition for their lives, which helps those pollinators feed us. 
And over time, incorporating native plants also saves money on things like fuel and maintenance, as well as saving tax money by reducing damage to the environment, such as groundwater and air pollution. That's great information. So if you think about it, one person's decision about what they do with their space can really echo throughout an entire community and even beyond, can't it? Absolutely. It may seem overwhelming and sometimes even futile, but I try to put it all in perspective by reminding myself that what we see happening around us is the result of cumulative effects of people's choices, mine included. And so if I choose to do nothing, and so do those around me, nothing will ever change. But if I choose to plant more natives, and so do those around me, well, then that's the kind of change that we in our environments need. Healing the earth one yard at a time, to quote the St. Louis Wild Ones tagline. Wow. I think it's really cool to reflect on how much change we can spark just by showing off our native plants and acting as native plant ambassadors to others who might be interested. And to be clear, it doesn't mean you have to go all in right away and tear up your entire yard, right? Maybe maybe you only have the time, energy, and space to replace a small patch of non-natives or turf grass with native plants, but it all adds up. And many people, once they start, I think it really hooks them. One of my closest friends recently planted a little patch of pollinator-friendly native plant species around her mailbox, and she's enjoyed it so much, she is now all in. And let me tell you, <laughs> she has caught the bug and she's yeah. probably listening right now and she knows who she is. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about all the great reasons to grow native plants. And I'm sure we've convinced at least a few people to take the plunge. But before they commit, it's only fair we talk about some of the challenges they may face. What are some of those challenges or what should listeners be aware of when making native plant choices for their homes? So native plants still have preferences. So the preferences include sunshade, dry, wet. What do they, where do they want to be? And just like traditional ornamental plants, right place, right plant is key. If a native species that naturally occurs on a dry glade is planted in a wet space or even a rain garden, she will likely become a finicky plant and eventually die. Mm. Another thing to consider is the idea of a no or low maintenance garden. These do not exist. The term low is subjective and even AstroTurf requires regular maintenance. So maintenance inputs can be lowered by planning ahead, understanding how plants spread, developing the skills to ID seedlings, and be open to changing your perception of what a well-tended landscape should be. For example, Leaving fallen leaves in place makes ecological and financial sense, but most of us have been socialized to rake and offload those leaves. When those leaves go bye-bye, so so too do luna moths and the Prometheus moth and other Lepidoptera cocoons that have been overwintering in fallen, fallen leaves. And then you are also removing a source of free mulch. And then also, as mentioned before, You know, aggressive native species can spread rapidly to neighbors, or they can also outcompete other species. But they can also be aggressive in some situations and not as others, just as ourselves. 
Right. <laughs> right, Michelle? Right, right. <laughs> so being aware not only of the growth habit of the plant, but also a site's current environmental conditions are important when considering suitability for a particular site. For example, prairie dock is a prairie slash glade species that has beautifully lush basil leaves mm-hmm. and wiry sunflower-esque blooms. Mm-hmm. It is just gorgeous. And in its natural environment, it spreads, but it's kept in check by low soil fertility and rocky soil profiles. But if placed in a cultivated garden with well-draining, fluffy garden soil, oh my goodness, it will it will potentially expand exponentially. Oh, I can imagine. So, okay, interesting. I know that the wildflower market will offer plants for every home, whether you have a really dry, sunny spot or a shady, wet area or a little bit of both. But what about other resources? I think when people don't know where or how to begin learning about garden with native plant species, it can seem a little overwhelming. And so maybe they just don't begin at all. Um, So for those listeners who are excited to incorporate native plants into their landscapes, I know we have a number of opportunity here at the Nature Reserve to learn more about how to do that. Would you talk a little bit about those? Sure thing. So I got to start out with the Whitmire Wildflower Garden. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is an exceptional place to see native plants in action. And you can see them in a more planned or cultivated landscape. And then you can watch how they change throughout the year, take photos, make notes. And then you you know, you know, see them in the Whitmire Wildflower Garden in this cultivated setting. And then out in the reserve, they're in a more natural setting. Mm-hmm. And that's a really nice thing to compare. We also have many container plantings around the Whitmire Wildflower Garden. And those can be inspirational for those who may not have a yard or access to a larger space, or maybe you just want to start small. And if you're not able to make the trip uh, for whatever reason out to Shaw Nature Reserve, there are other wonderful places around the city uh, to um, look at native plants in action. There are new native plantings in Forest Park, in Tower Grove Park, down in City, City Garden, downtown, um, and then a host of of newer plantings um, around the city. So there are plenty of places to actually see them, um, but I do encourage you to come out to the Whitmire because it is an exceptional um, place to view native plants in a more cultivated setting. And then we also offer the Native Plant School, and these are two-hour classes um, offered each month. They normally sell out, but if you can get in, um, please try, please try, because they are really awesome experiences. You know, we um, do hope to offer more information about these classes in later episodes of the podcast, from what I understand. Yes. Um, (laughs) Our next class... Uh, is going to be on cut flower arrangements using native plants, and it'll be taught by horticulturalist Joan Klingensmith, and she is a flower gardener extraordinaire. Oh, I'm a big fan of Joan's. All right, what else? Me too. (laughs) And then we also have the Shaw Nature Reserve website. My goodness, it is a wealth of information. It includes planting ideas, a list of plants, and, you know, what, what these plants might grow and where and how, invasive plant removal, and then also information on storm map. Um, stormwater management guidance. Mm -hmm. And then while these that I'm going to kind of go over are not necessarily Shaw Nature Reserve resources, we do often recommend uh, interested new gardeners to visit Grow Native's website for template designs. They have like a bird garden, a template for a bird garden, a front front yard formal, a butterfly garden. And then they also offer planning information and species profile profiles through their um, 
native plant database. In addition, Grow Native offers a resource guide that lists contractors and designers who specialize in native plants. Or you could also look into joining Wild Ones, um, and there's one in St. Charles as well as in, in St. Louis. Or you could contact Bring Conservation Home um, for a, a consultation or more information on, on planting in your in your home garden. And then, of course, please come visit us at the Fall Wildflower Market. Yes, definitely. Come visit the Wildflower Market. Once again, listeners, we will have more details about when and where and how to do exactly that in just a few more moments. But first, Erin, I'd love to ask a couple of get-to-know-you questions, but they'll be softballs, okay? All right. All right. We've talked a lot about native plants and the wildflower market today. What is your favorite native wildflower and why? That is such a tough question. <laughs> I feel like that's asking a person, like, what's, which is their favorite kid? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I th- also, it kind of depends on the time of year. Um, but I guess if I had to choose a favorite, it would it would have to be wild ginger, or uh, the botanical name is Asarum canadense. Um, it's low-growing with velvety, deep, green, kidney-shaped leaves. It blooms in April and um, blooms just barely above the soil level. It's pollinated by ants and some beetles, and each seed has a fleshy, carb-heavy appendage that entices ants to carry uh, the seeds back to their nests, mm-hmm. and that helps distribute and disperse the seeds into new areas of a woodland. Very cool. And wild ginger has a really, really long history of use by indigenous and settler cultures for food and medicine. And to me, this plant is an amazing ambassador. And it provides easy-to-trace interconnections between food and culture webs. Very cool. What is the most rewarding part of your job? I think it would have to be, you know, having the chance to funnel my shared passions of Native plant education and cultivation through community partnerships and social environmental justice initiatives. In an 1857 oft-quoted speech, abolitionist Frederick Douglass said, quote, those who profess to favor freedom yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning, and they want ocean without the awful roar of its many waters, unquote. Part of my role is to help disrupt traditionally reinforced standards of what an acceptable garden should look like, to offer possible alternatives, and then the knowledge and skills to make it happen. If to me, if humanity wants to save itself, we really have to start recognizing that each one of us has the power to enact change, first within ourselves, and then through our gardens, and especially with relationships with other people. And sometimes that means ruffling some feathers. Yeah, I love that. Where is your favorite place to be in nature at Shaw Nature Reserve, and why? So I have a picture of an opening along one of the Glade Trails, and I took it about 10 years ago, mm. before I ever thought about working here at <laughs> the chance. But it's a picture of a gnarly persimmon, and it fronts a vista of short grass prairie. And I take this picture literally everywhere I go, both as a screensaver, but also in my heart, because it's one of the most beautiful places to visit. Um, there are lots of places to visit on the reserve that are beautiful, but to me, this one especially is is the most beautiful And part of it is because it reminds me of so many other vistas that I've seen on other journeys and then how they all are connected. Connected. 
I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think you're right. It's all connected. And when I think back over our talk today, it feels like that idea of connection is a through line. It sounds like working together to keep the connections within our ecosystems vibrant, healthy, and strong will go a long way towards shoring up our planet's stability and health as a whole. And it's really amazing to think that just one person planting a few native plants in their home landscape and encouraging others to do the same can make a real difference in that effort. Erin, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Thanks so much for coming out and sharing with our listeners. I'm sure everyone is hoping to hear more from you in the future, so I'll hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, listeners, today we talked all about wildflower markets and native plants and all the reasons we think you should want to be part of this growing movement of using native plants in our home landscapes. I hope you'll find some time to come out and visit the wildflower market. Here are all the details you need to know about the market and all our other events. Side note, folks, if you're listening from the future, these dates are all in 2023. Here we go. The Fall Wildflower Market is taking place Friday, September 8th from 3 to 7 p.m. Members get in free, so join or renew today. Non-members, you're only $5 per person or $10 per vehicle, so save some money and carpool if you can. Prefer to shop ahead at home and pick up your order on market day? If so, I know your ears perked up at Aaron's mention of the market pre-sale for plants grown by our very own horticulture team. That pre-sale is happening right now. Inventory lists are publicly available, and that will allow you to research the plants available and make your list before you purchase. But don't delay. The pre-sale will close on August 24th to give our amazing horticulture team time to pull your orders. Don't worry if you do miss the pre-sale. There will be other great local vendors available to serve you. So just to review, pre-sale is now through August 24th. The in-person market and pre-order pickup is Friday, September 8th from 3 to 7 p.m. All these details are available online, so check the show notes for those links. Okay, whew, that's our big highlight for this episode. Here's what else is happening at Shaw Nature Reserve as we move into, believe it or not, fall. First, Take note, registration is now open for fall and winter programs, so be sure to go online, peruse the full class catalog, and select your classes today. I believe the Native Plant School classes Erin mentioned are probably found there. Also found there is registration for the Leaves and Seeds Fall Fun Run 5K taking place at the Nature Reserve on October 21st. We would love to see a big crowd out there taking in the gorgeous fall colors, so Go ahead and sign up. Coming up the first weekend of November, that's November 4th and 5th, is our annual art show. There are so many amazing local artists who will have their work on display this year, and the backdrop cannot be beat. It's your chance to have a closer look at the historic cabins of the Dana Brown Overnight Center. And then, closing out the year in December, we'll host the Whitmire Wonderlights. Stay tuned for more information in later episodes as we get closer to time. 
I've had a great time visiting with Erin today and learning all about the wildflower markets at Shaw Nature Reserve and all the reasons why we believe it's so important to learn about and hopefully choose to use native plants in our home gardens and landscapes. If you had a good time listening, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and tell everyone you know about us. We love reaching new listeners and seeing new faces, as well as hearing from old familiar friends. Check out our show notes, drop us a line at snrinfo at mobot.org, and tell us what you think. Even better, come say hi in person if you can, and let the Visitor Center team know you heard about us here. I can't wait to bring you more information, education, and entertainment directly from Shaw Nature Reserve. Watch for new episodes every month or so. Until then, we will see you on the trail.